Recorded live from Winterfell Studios in Portland, Oregon, this is WPR, Westeros Public Radio. From the Princes of Dawn to the Kings in the North, we bring you the latest and greatest in Westeros. Eight days a week. Hey small folk, hello and welcome to another edition of WPR, Westeros Public Radio. With you as always is myself, your host, Lynn the Jazzman Thunder. And I am joined today by the audacious, the bodacious, John Bryant, Lord of the Soundboard. Thank you, Lord Thunder. Bella Mavulis. Bella Duelis. Got it right the first time. Nailed it. That's right. <laughs> we are brought to you, small folk, by a grant from the Joffrey Foundation. And, of course, by donations from listeners like yourself. Uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of donations lately, small folk. Uh, send them in. We're really hungry. We need to eat. Yeah, you guys make this happen. Yeah. Uh, that's why it's been like a month since our last episode. <laughs> it has been a while. That's why we're a little rusty. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing today, John Brian? I'm doing good. I'm excited to talk some Game of Thrones. A lot has happened. Uh, we're four episodes at this point deep. We got I a fifth one coming up. have not been disappointed so far. It's been a spectacular season. Yeah. So, John Bryant, on today's episode, we are going to have uh, a real quick breakdown of season six so far, and yeah. then you've got a special report that you intend to file on the reigns of Castamere. That's right. We've all heard the, the you know catchy tune, but do we really know what it's about, what it means, what it says? We're going to find that out. That's right. All part of our mission to expose you to the people, places, and culture of Westeros. As always, we've got a top five today, and then... We have another installment of our multi-part series on the Wars of the Roses. But first, the news. <coughs> Latest news out of King's Landing. The High Sparrow continues to hold Queen Marjorie and her brother Loris in the cells of the Sept of Baylor. The Queen is accused of perjury, and her brother Loris is accused of being a sword swallower. King Tolman and his counselors have yet to issue any statement regarding the situation. At Castle Black, reports have been received that Jon Snow, once Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, but subsequently murdered, has returned. We have also received word that Lazy Sansa has been spotted with Jon Snow at Castle Black. From the Iron Islands, the Ironborn report that Balin Greyjoy, the self-proclaimed king of the Ironborn, has died. A small funeral service was held with family and retainers. Analysts believe that the king's moot will be held to elect a new king of the Ironborn. In Winterfell, tensions are rising in the north as we receive word that Roos Bolton, once Warden of the North, has been killed and usurped by his naturalized son, Ramsay Bolton. Across the narrow sea in Marine, Daenerys Targaryen remains missing. In her absence, Marine has experienced acts of arson and unrest. De facto leader of the city, Tyrion Lannister, has begun talks with the supporters of the Sons of the Harpy in an attempt to reach a resolution. That's the news. Wow, that was a pretty in-depth raven we got there. Yeah, that, that raven, he's been around, seen yeah. some shit, and uh, brought it to us. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> raven technology is great. Ravens are cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John Brent, to Westeros. To Westeros. 
<laughs> Come, bow before your king. Bow your shits. <laughs> it's a shame the throne is made out of cocks. They'd have never got him off it. So, John Bryant, you have spent some time in the Westerlands talking with the people who live there, speaking with the maesters and doing some research, and you have been exposed and really gone in-depth on the old tune of the Lannisters known as the Reigns of Castamere, and apparently there's quite a backstory to it. That's right, small folk. You've all heard the famous song, The Reigns of Castamere, but do you really know what it's about? Uh, featured predominantly at the Red Wedding. That's right, Lynn Thunder. My report kind of explains why this is Tywin Lannister's theme song. Do you remember when, like, Stone Cold Steve Austin would come out? Or actually, right before he would come out, his theme music would start, and people were like, oh, shit, he's coming. Stone Cold Steve Austin 316! <laughs> <laughs> well, this is kind of Tywin Lannister's version of that, but okay. we'll get into it. So, John Bryant, how did this song become Tywin Lannister's theme song. I mean, he didn't write it, did he? He did not write it. It was wrote, wrote by a, a bard about him. Not everyone might be familiar with the lyrics of the song. You know, it's not really featured too much in the show, you know, the lyrics, but and that's really what we want to get at. So I'm going to start out by uh, reading the lyrics. Uh, I'm not a singer, so uh, you'll have to bear with me. Let's rap, John, right? <laughs> do you want to throw down a beat for me? No, I'm just joking. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Um, and who are you, the proud lord said, that I must bow so low? Only a cat of a different coat, that's all the truth I know. In a coat of gold or a coat of red, a lion still has claws. And mine are long and sharp, my lord, as long and sharp as yours. And so he spoke, and so he spoke, that lord of Castamere. But now the reins we bore his hall, with no one there to hear. Yes, now the reins we bore his hall, and not a soul to hear. But what's it all about? You could say it's about two lions, or it's about House Lannister and House Rain. But it's actually about one man, Tywin Lannister, Lord of Castle Rock. I want to break in here for a minute, John Bryant. I think it's very cool that we are recording this piece in the reins of Castamere. In the middle of a thunderstorm. Yeah, that is kind of cool. I w should we... Uh, I don't know if you're getting any of this small folk, but it's <laughs> should, happening. We need to throw a mic outside. Yeah. <laughs> Get some ambient noise. Um, so it's about Tywin Lannister. Now, Lynn Thunder, I'm going to throw a scenario up to for you. If you were playing Family Feud, you're, fam you're familiar with uh, Family Feud, right? Steve Harvey, Richard Dawson. Yeah, you know, survey Questions says... Questions that are overtly sexual. <laughs> yeah. Okay, if you're playing Family Feud in Westeros, who's the one family you don't want to play against? The Lannisters. Definitely the Lannisters. Trust me, it's definitely the Lannisters. I mean, think about it. Tyrion Lannister, he's just going to get all the questions right. Cersei Lannister, Lannister she's, she's going to break up your marriage. She's going to break up your marriage. <laughs> yeah. um, Tywin Lannister, he's going to tell, he's going to get your kids, your wife, and Steve Harvey to betray you before the end of the first round. Steve Harvey would never betray me, John Bryant. Oh, never. Tywin Lannister would make him betray you. Oh no! And yeah, you know, Jamie just run you through with a sword. Yeah, if that all fails, Jamie yeah. just kills you. You wouldn't have a chance. Exactly. So uh, sticking with that family feud analogy, um, if you surveyed 100 small folk and asked them to describe House Lannister in a word, what, what do you think they'd say? Powerful, cunning, uh, you know. Wealthy. Uh, ruthless, I guess. Yeah, wealthy, fierce, dangerous. Yeah, all those words. Those, all those words would be right, especially wealthy. 
because uh, they've been rich for a really long time. But for the rest of those things, it wasn't always that way. In fact, there was a time not that long ago where House Lannister was kind of a joke. See, See Tywin's dad, Titus Lannister, was Warden of the West and Lord of Castle Rock. Now, the thing you got to know about Castle Rock is it's a gold mine, literally. It's where the gold comes from. It's a giant castle on top of a gold mine. It's a, it's as high as a skyscraper. Um, it's so big, it actually has its own shipping port in the right above the bowels of the castle. Um, Ships literally sail into the castle. So, yeah, they have a gold mine there that's been providing House Lannister with its wealth for thousands of years. And it's as tall as a skyscraper. Uh, now, as strong as Castle Rock is, Tytos Lannister wasn't seen that way. Some would say he was generous, kind-hearted, and forgiving. But others would say he was soft, frivolous, ignorant, and weak. Would you say simple and timorous like a certain person we know? Could You could definitely say that. You could definitely say that. Now, what do we know when you're a high lord and you have these tendencies? What happens? People don't respect you. People don't respect you and they take advantage of you. That's right. So uh, when Tywin Lannister was a young man, he was sent to uh, King's Landing to be a cupbearer at the Red Keep, you know, at the castle, serve drinks to the royal um, lords and such. Where he befriended Ares Targaryen. That's true. That's true. And uh, Ares' relationship with Tywin, that's a whole other podcast. We've covered (laughs) that before. Yeah, we could go go really deep, but we'll save that for another time. So while Tywin was a cupbearer at the Red Keep, he kind of got a sense that his dad was a joke. There were other people there making light of him and saying, oh, you're Ty- or you're Tidos' son. So he, he really got the idea that his dad wasn't respected. And he also saw what it was like for a proper lord to be respected and how he should act and how uh, his vassals should treat a proper lord. Got himself an education. Exactly. He, he saw that this kind of stuff was not happening at his house. He knew that Tidos's bannermen often mocked him in his own hall. Um, Tidos was a joke, and the Lannister name was a joke. When Tywin came back to the Rock after he had, uh, you know, gotten knighted and won some battles in the Step Zones, he basically called out his dad, saying, "I am Lord Tywin Lannister." <laughs> no, he basically said, "You know, enough's enough." Um, you've lent out a bunch of money to people. They're not even paying it back. Um, you're not doing your jobs as a lord. You're being lazy. You're just kind of being frivolous with our money. You're um, disgracing you're the disgracing your name. name. I'm not going to stand around and watch you um, depress our name and fortune anymore. I'm in charge now. I'm not going to, you know, be in charge in name, but I'm going to start calling the shots. And, and Tywin's young when he does this. He's like 18 or 19 or 20 or something yeah, like that. Uh, yeah, in his late teens, so uh, it's kind of a shock for his dad, but Tywin's got such charisma, and he's a, le- he's a born leader that his dad kind of kowtows to him. So after Tywin calls out his dad, basically, in the middle of the feast, and says, I'm calling the shots now, the first thing he does is send out a letter to all his father's bannermen, saying, if you owe House Lannister any money, it's time to pay up, your debt is due. If you can't pay, you're sending hostages until you can pay. Pretty ballsy move, but probably necessary one as well. The second thing he does is totally change the way the port fees are handled. 
Seems that under trustful eye of Tidos, uh, things are getting a little sloppy on to who paid what in taxes. A lot of winking and nodding going on. Yeah, you know, just he was a trustful guy, and there was a lot of people taking advantage of him. And Tido, Tywin saw that and had to fix it. Now, there's two ways you can look at what Ty, Tywin's doing here. Um, one way you could look at it is that Tywin saw what was going on, fixed it. He didn't kill his father or anything like that, which a lot of people in Westeros probably would have done. Uh, you know, just killed their father, and then they're in charge. Wait, uh, do, you re- do you really think like a noble person would kill their father? I mean, let's really? ask like in Westeros. Let's ask Ramsay Bolton. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Tywin came in, started running the family business instead of just kind of sucking off the teat like his dad had been doing. Now, the other way you could look at this is that Tywin was a stuck-up rich kid that thought he was tough. So he was going to call in all the family's debt and raise taxes and shipping fees just to add to the trust fund. I mean, why does the richest family in Westeros need more money? Exactly. The 1% have been keeping people down long enough. It's time to share the wealth. Yeah. Well, this is the way Lord Roger Rain saw it, the red line of Castamere. The Reigns were the second richest house in um, Westeros, and they were also in the Westerlands. They were also on top of a big gold mine. The uh, castle that Roger Rain had built was just as big as Castle Rock, and he also liked to point out that he would spend more money on lav- lavish jewels for his wife than Tidos Ty- or Tywin did. Well, and the other thing about the castle of the Reigns is that you know, like ninety percent of it is actually underground. Yeah. Because they had taken what was an old gold mine and don't spoil it for me. All right, right, right. that's that's coming. That's coming. That's coming. So, so Roger Wayne saying uh, sees this letter that Tywin sends out and says, you know, Tidos can't even keep his kid in check. His his own son's defying him. This is another sign of weakness. And he starts to thinking, you know, my castle's just as big as his. My family's super rich. I got a big gold mine. Um, I'm a battle commander. I'm stronger than Tidos and Tywin Lannister. I should be warden of the West. And who are you, the proud lord said, that I must bow so low? Only a cat of a different coat. That is all the truth I know. Lord Rain's saying, hey, maybe it's time to make a change here. Lord Roger thought it was time for a change and declared open rebellion against House Lannister and told all of his vassals to ignore the commands of the Lannisters. But he didn't realize is there was already been a change, a drastic change. It wasn't easygoing, weak-willed Tidos Lannister calling the shots anymore. It was Tywin Lannister. Sir Tywin Lannister, I should say. In a coat of gold or a coat of red, a lion still has claws. And mine are long and sharp, my lord, as long as sharp as yours. I'm still something to be reckoned with. Exactly. So I'm going to read a short description so everyone kind of gets the feel for Tywin Lannister. It's about him when he was much older and later on in life, but I think you'll get the idea. Tywin Lannister, Lord of Castle Rock and Warden of the West, was in his middle fifties, yet hard as a man of twenty. Even seated, he was tall, with long legs, broad shoulders, a flat stomach. His thin arms were corded with muscle. When his once thick golden hair began to recede, he commanded his barber to shave his head. Lord Tywin did not believe in half measures. Eventually, the Lannister army and the Reigns army met. 
The reigns of Castamir were no match for the power of Lannisters and the rest of the armies of the West, led by Tywin Lannister himself. Seems Roger Rain underestimated this young upjump lord and fled back to his castle. Now, reports vary on exactly what happened next, but here's the gist. Tywin and his host set siege to Castamere and surrounded it. They wouldn't let anyone in or out. Roger, seeing that his rebellion was over basically as soon as it started, um, tried to make peace terms with Tywin. Roger said he would swear allegiance to House Lannister and send Roger's brother to Castle Rock as a hostage. But Tywin didn't even respond to these terms. In Tywin's mind, time for negotiation was far over. Lord Tywin did not believe in half measures. The reins were a problem that needed solved completely, here and now. It wasn't about the money, it was about sending a message. Exactly. So Castamere is another one of these castles that's built on top of a gold mine, and Tywin knew this. He ordered the castle to be burned to the ground, and knew once this happened, all the people in the castle would go to the underground mines. They had basically turned them into bomb shelters with, provi- with provisions. Um, they thought they could s- stay underground until they could reach some kind of peace agreement with the Lannister army. But what they didn't know is they weren't ever going to be coming out of those mines. Tywin had ordered all the exits of the mine sealed. So all the Rain family, their household servants, their army, all of their small, small folk, anyone who still you know, remained loyal to them, were in these mines, thousands of people. Tywin had his men divert a river into the tunnels. So slowly, the mines began to fill with water with no way out. But now the rains we bore his hall with no one there to hear. Yes, now the rains we bore his hall and not a soul to hear. An ancient family line and all their subjects totally extinguished with nothing but a song to remember them by. No half measures indeed. This is Westeros Public Radio with Lynn the Jazzman Thunder. I am the god of jits and wine. And John Bryant. I vomited on a girl once. 
middle of the act, not proud of it. Bringing you the latest and greatest from Westeros. The time is 6.35. Valyrian Standard. Okay, John Brent, here we are with another top five in an effort to expose the small folk of Westeros to the people, places, and culture of their country. What is our top five list for today, John Ryan? Top five moments so far in season six. All right. As always, I've put together my list. You have put together your list. We have not seen each other's list, and we're going to compare them. That's right. All right, John Bryant. What is your number five top five moment of season six so far? Why don't you go first? All right, I'll go first. Okay, so my number five moment <laughs> All right, <laughs> is when one one comes into the gate of Castle Black. Grabs a guy and smashes him against a wall. Oh, that is pretty cool. We finally get to see Juan Juan kick a little ass real quick and pretty for much you, let the White Knights watch know who's in charge here. For you small folk, Juan Juan is the giant. Yeah. Who batters down the gate <laughs> and just stares everyone into submission. That whole scene's pretty cool. Just when the wildlings come in, one Knight's watch person... Let's an arrow loose. One one kills him, and then they're all just like, "Fuck this!" Yeah, they drop, <laughs> they drop their weapons. It's, it's it's done. Yeah, uh, can't blame them. All right, John Bright. My top five moment of season six so far is Roos Bolton's death. Okay, you know, it, for people who don't necessarily remember it, it's it kind of took me by surprise. Totally I, took me by surprise. You know, they come in, they say, Walda has had a baby, it's a baby boy, it's very healthy, congratulations. Ruth says, you know what, Ramsey, you'll always be my son. And then Ramsey says, that's great, and kills him. Yeah. Um, worst job in Westeros has to be being the maester of the Bolton family. <laughs> yeah, that's got to really suck. So uh, that took him by surprise, and it really it was a game changer. Game changer in the North. Big time. Because now Ramsey Bolton, super psychopath, is warden of the North. And I got to think that Roos's final, one of his final words to him was like, if you act like a mad dog, a rabid dog, you're going to be taken out back and put down. And people are going to treat you like a mad dog. And I think that's what's going to happen. Very yep. prophetic of Roos, I think. Yep. All right, that's, that's my number five. My number four. Finding out that Lady Melisandre is old as fuck. That was my number four, too. All right. Good job, John. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it's, frankly, HBO, uh, directors, producers, I didn't need to see that. I, I'd say bravo. Really? Yeah, because that took me by complete surprise and stunned the shit oh, out of me. Finding out she was old was very stunning. Seeing her completely naked old, didn't need to see that. Well, dude, if they just show a, you know, a naked lady, or I'm sorry... If they just show you an old lady face, it's not going to jar you like like showing, saggy body. <laughs> yeah, seeing all the gilf in her. <laughs> More like g g g g g gilf. Yeah, seriously. So uh, does it? If we were doing a top five uh, sexiest ladies in Westeros, would that take her take Melisandre off your list? Ooh, good question. Uh, just knowing that that's what she actually looks like. Yeah, boy. Jump around, I don't want to think about that. Okay. So do you think it was the the necklace that was doing that or something else and it just happened to be that she took the necklace off and then she kind of like turned off her glamour or whatever? I think it has to be the necklace, right? 
But, you know, the way you could check that is going back through her scenes where she's naked. Well, there's And that... seeing whether or not she's still wearing the necklace. She's not wearing the necklace. I, I did do this. <laughs> <laughs> Even um, before I knew she was old. <laughs> <laughs> but she's not wearing... You remember that scene where she's talking to... Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Stannis' wife. Stannis' wife in the bathtub. Oh, yeah. She's not wearing the necklace. Okay, all right. So maybe it's not the it's not the necklace thing. It's got to be some sort of other like she's willing herself to look like that. Yeah, like I think it's some kind of like glamour, kind of yeah. like uh, yeah. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe it's Maybelline. Okay, that's that's, that's number four. Uh, Melisandre, very very old. Okay. What's your number three? My number three is, and it was a very short little thing, and it was just happened in the last episode, but it was um, when. Tormat Giants Bane was sitting across the table from Lady Brienne of Tarth. <laughs> giving her that look. <laughs> just giving her that I want to fuck you eyes. Do, do you remember uh, one of the first things Tormund said when Jon Snow met him was, I want to fuck a giant. Yeah. <laughs> and Lady Brienne's pretty close to a giant. And uh, that's close whole, he's going to get. The whole thing with the wildlings is like they want to breed the biggest, strongest kids that they can. And in Tormat Giant Bane's eyes, that is just like the perfect you know oven for making a giant <laughs> for his babies yeah for his making his giant babies uh, and i just love he was like ripping into a piece of chicken just staring at her and oh it was like we're gonna fight but we'll fuck yeah and Brian didn't seem to you know dislike it she wasn't saying no she wasn't saying you know absolutely no she was maybe interested i don't know just something to look forward to down the road i guess we'll see yeah. that was my number three moment okay. of season six so far <laughs> My number three, uh, kind of a small moment, but it really stuck out at me. And kind of, I I thought it very revealing about uh, a character. It's when the High Sparrow stares down Jamie Lannister at uh, what's her face's funeral. Marcel at yeah, Marcelo's funeral. funeral. Yeah. yeah, great sip of Baylor. Yeah, I mean, Jamie basically says, "Look, I'm going to kill you," and High Sparrow says, "Go ahead." Ain't gonna do you any good. Well, he says, you dare spill blood in this god's house? And then Jamie says, yeah, the gods won't care. They've spilled more than the rest of us combined. <laughs> yeah, and then the High Sparrow just stares him down. Yeah. And I, I always kind of like the High Sparrow because uh, you really enjoy, I, I, for one, really enjoy the fact that he's standing up to these powerful people and treating them just like the small folk, just like the way they've treated the small folk, and saying, you're no different from everyone else. I mean, he's not a hypocrite. I mean, he walks around in like a rucksack. Bare feet. He washes the he washes the sept just like anyone else. I kind of respect that about him. But you know he's also playing a game. He's also yeah. playing a power game. Yeah, there's something else motivating him that we don't know about yet. And staring down Jamie was just was kind of a moment where you realize that he's going toe to toe with these powerful people. He's not going to back down. Yeah, I liked it. So my number two, John Bryan. Number two top five moment was flashback. The sword fight between Sir Arthur Dane, Sword of the Morning, and Ned Stark. Now, the sword fight in and of itself was very, very cool. But the fact that we find out that Ned Stark was a liar. Honorable Ned Stark lied about actually beating Sir Arthur Dane when, in fact, he got lucky. Well, I, I thought that was, that was a little bit of a game changer for Bran. Yeah, it's definitely setting us up to have some more, you know, disturbing thoughts about ned who we we all had in this on this pedestal yes some revelations um, one about thing him. that i would 
a couple things that I'd like to point out about that scene and how I was very disappointed in it. All right. Break it down. First thing, Sir Arthur Dane... De- well, okay, you see him? He's there sharpening his sword. Uh-huh. And then next, he shoves his sword into the dirt, like into the gra- rocky ground. Okay. You don't do that with a sharpened no. sword. If you're the awesome swordsman that you are, the, you, you treat your sword with a little respect. You don't just shove it in the ground and make it all dull, especially right after you've been um, sharpening it and right before you're about to fight like six dudes. Okay, so John Bryant, that's little the first critical part. of Sir Arthur Dane's swordsmanship. That's the first part. All right. I, I got a little loud there. I apologize. Right. <laughs> but, got, a, got a little heated. The second part is he. I don't think he ever would fight with two swords. It did look a little goofy. It looks a little goofy. Plus, like he was famous for having the sword of the morning. That's or right. Having, I don't remember what his sword is. He had a famous, starfall or something. Yeah, starfall, whatever. He had a famous sword. He didn't have two famous swords, and he fought with yeah the two swords thing. I don't know. I didn't buy it. If if you, it sure looked cool though. Yeah, it looked okay. All right, and, John Bryant, a little of a sword critic here. Yeah, I'm just saying it. It was a little disappointing. Also, also the way I recall it, Helen Reed like jumped out of like a two story window with like a spear to kill. Um, Sir a little Arthur bit cooler than a little you know, cooler just than jumping just, from behind. Yeah, just being like, oh, here's a knife in the back. Yeah, yeah. So I was disappointed by that scene. That's just me. Okay. All That's, right. Well, my number two. It seems that I very much was not disappointed by. Almost brought tears to my eyes. This part was when Sansa shows up at the gate at Castle Black. Okay. Oh my gosh! Finally, we get a Stark reunion. A small one, but. God damn it, dude. It grabbed my cockles and just wouldn't let go. That it, was the you felt it in your heart. It was the most heartwarming scene of all. If we ever did top five most heartwarming scenes, this would be number one. And number two and number three and, and number, number four and number five. Four. Yeah. It was just awesome to see that happen and just to see that, you know, these two they put aside any petty differences that they made ahead and they just realize that they're lucky to have each other at this moment. And ah. When they've lost so much else, they still have each other. Exactly. It was my favorite part of maybe my favorite part of the show ever. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe maybe I should have made it my number one on this list in that case. But, I was gonna say how you, how you yeah, trumped that. But it was fucking awesome. Okay. Um, so that was my number two. When right, Sansa so Stark and John reunite. What is your number one moment so far of season six? This one's a little selfish. Um, okay. When Tyrion goes in and frees the dragons. I think Tyrion is a lost Targaryen. He re- a secret yeah. Targaryen. I, I'm sold You want to see now. it happen. I, I think Tyrion Lannister is a Targaryen. He's going to be riding giants, and he's got the blood in him. Okay. So, he's going to be riding giants. All yeah, right. that, that scene where he went... Uh, not Are riding, you sure he's going to be riding giants? Riding dragons. Sorry. <laughs> I'm getting excited. Uh, <laughs> Get a little bit of torment in yeah, me. Yeah, so my the- my my very obscure theory that Tyrion Lannister is part Targaryen. That kind of just nudged it all the way up to the edge for me. Okay, all right, yeah, I could, I could see it. It's kind mm-hmm. of a build up. All right, fair enough. My number one moment so far of season six. Also a little selfish because if the small folk recall, this was one of my predictions for season six. It is when Daenerys steps out of the fire and gets the entire Dothraki to bow before her. That was pretty badass. And I'll tell you, I'll t- that moment was cool in and of itself. Yeah. A very, uh, very well done, very well filmed, 
and I think presented beautifully. Uh, and obviously, I predicted that something like this would happen when she went to... I predicted she would go to Vice Dothraki, and I predicted she would come out of Vice Dothraki, leading all the Dothraki. So it made me feel good about myself to see Daenerys <laughs> stepping out of that fire. But I'll tell you what was even cooler about it, John Bryant. It was the build-up to it. Yeah. It was when she comes in, and she's staring down all the calls. And I gotta admit to you, John Bryant, I did not see it coming. When the calls were talking about, no, here's how it's gonna be, I was kind of saying to myself, whoa, Daenerys, maybe step back a little bit, maybe regroup, yeah. and just keep your head down for a little while. You're about to get raped by, like, a hundred dudes and then their horses. Yeah. Maybe you should slow your roll. And I don't necessarily want to see that, HBO. But, damn, when she grabbed that brazier and just knocked it over, I was like, oh, Calm, shit. Calm, cool, and collected. It was, it was like, when that second when she grabbed it, and people looked at her and shit she's not burning that's when you knew that's when you knew shit was gonna go down yeah i really liked when she pointed out that that was the same room that cal drogo made his big speech about going across the seas and um taking the iron throne for his wife uh tearing down the steel men oh that was coming back to where it all started yeah i thought i thought it was a fantastic scene it was all right, so recap, John Bryan. Top five moments of season six for myself. Ruse Bolton's death. Lady Melisandre, very, very old. High Sparrow staring down Jamie Lannister. Arthur Dane and the Tower of Joy and finding out a little bit about Ned Stark. And then, of course, Daenerys. Being Daenerys and taking control. <laughs> uh, my number five was Juan Juan coming into Castle Black. Number four was the Gilf Melisandre. Uh, number f- five, number three was Tormont, uh, Giants Bane looking at Brienne and uh, giving her the fuck me eyes. Uh, number I'm gonna I'm gonna switch them up. Number two was Tyrion and the dragons. And number oh now no, you're switching them up. Na- okay, you know what? you only gave me like five minutes to put this list together. All right, all right, so I'm gonna switch it on the fly. I'm doing it. Okay, uh, my number one was John and Sansa reunited. It 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 warmed my heart. Warmed your heart. Yes. From the cold, cold snows of Castle Black. A little bit of warmth coming from us. Yep. Alright. Well, I think it's time, John Bryant, for us to get a little get away a little bit from Westeros and get some context for Westeros and what's going on. Of course, I'm referring to the Wars of the Roses. Let's do it. To England. Who's that then? I don't know. Must be a king. Why? He hasn't got shit all over him. I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. That is the result of his majesty's government. Okay, so here we are with another installment. When we left off, the Duke of York's son, Edward, had become King of England after defeating Margaret and the Lancasters at the Battle of Totone. And we spent a lot of time discussing why Edward was, be able, was able to become king after this battle. Now, if you recall, after the battle, Margaret and Henry had to flee north to Scotland. They couldn't be in England anymore. Now, even though they're in Scotland and a lot of their power has been cut off from them, they're still able to cause trouble for King Edward and the Yorkists. 
So after 1461, which is when the Battle of the Tau Town takes place, they keep coming into England trying to start shit. But they can never get anything off the ground because Edward is so quick and so decisive. They are supported by France and Scotland, in addition to some of the nobles in England who thought that Henry ought to be king. A lot of the supporters of Margaret who gained a lot from her favor. But because she kept losing, her power just sort of withers away. With each loss, Edward's claim to the throne becomes stronger. It's more cemented, more firm. People have to recognize it a little bit more. And her own power withers away. Because who can support someone who keeps on losing? Now, I know that we have sort of painted Margaret as maybe the villain in this story a little bit, comparing her to Cersei Lannister. Not a great comparison, but I think it's worth noting that during this time period, Margaret actually actually goes through a lot, and she's kind of a badass. I just want to quote from one contemporary source who describes what Margaret had to go through to escape capture after one of these failed incursions. After hiding some of her best rings in her clothes, she and her son, young Edward, Prince of Wales, mounted ponies and set off with guides, riding only by night, until they came to a very large and dense forest still in England. Here, she and her son were caught, captured by thieves and murderers who wanted to kill them, but a great argument broke out over whom was to have her rings and jewels. While it pleased God that these murderers should be quarreling with each other, Taking her son in her arms, she hid in the forest. Finally, overcome by hardship and exhaustion, she had no choice but to entrust her child to another brigand whom she encountered in the woods, saying unto him, Save your king's son. Through this man, she and her son escaped out of the hands of those robbers and murderers and got away. So, Margaret kind of a badass getting captured by thieves and murderers and escaping anyway you can tell she's you can tell she's one of those moms that'll do anything to take care of her kids oh yeah uh very you know a very ambitious lady but certainly one with a lot of resources however all those resources all that ambition doesn't do her any good and edward still keeps beating her and her supporters and by 1465, about five years after she had been banished to Scotland, uh, King Henry is actually captured during one of these incursions and imprisoned in a tower of London by King Edward. So Henry's gone, the, king, the old king has been captured, and Margaret is forced to head over to France. Her power is finally broken once and for all. But that's not the end of the story. She's down but not out. Exactly. You see, while Edward's having a lot of success, beating all the Lancasters and solidifying his power, he's having some trouble keeping all of the Yorksists on his side happy. Now, if you remember Warwick, who is the head of the Neville family, the big family that has always supported the Yorksists, going back to the original Duke of York, uh, has been awarded a lot of power by King Edward. He's gotten honors, he's gotten offices, he's getting titles. He's basically getting government contracts, the medieval equivalent of government contracts. He's the richest man in England. 
You know, for example, Edward made him Admiral of England, made him the Great Chamberlain, made him Captain of Calais, uh, Constable of Dover, Warden of the Cinque Ports, uh, gave a lot of titles and offices, not just to Warwick, but also to other me- members of the Neville family. So the entire family is getting rich off King Edward. Can I ask a very unimportant question? Sure. What is Constable of Dorwick? <laughs> Constable of Dover? Dover, sorry. I, I, it's just an office, you know? It's just another way for him to make money. Okay. You know, because he gets a salary for being Constable of Dover. Oh, okay, so uh, every title you get is just more money that you're getting paid. Got exactly. it. Exactly. Got it. it. It's more power to you, more money, you know, you're closer to the king. You know, it's like making someone secretary of state or something like that. Yes. They get a nice cushy salary and they're someone of importance. Yeah, but secretary of state's probably like a hard job, too. Right, well, it's not <laughs> exactly the same. Okay. Anyway, the Nevilles are getting a lot of favor. However, Warwick has so much power that people are starting to think that he's actually the one who's in charge. You know, he's the one behind the scenes actually pulling the string, and Edward's just the young, charismatic, good-looking face on the crown. Warwick is the one who has the real power. And in fact, a little bit later on, he's given the moniker the Kingmaker. He's so powerful. But while Edward's doing all this and granting power to Warwick and the Nevilles, he's also doing this to former Lancastrians. He's trying to heal the to heal the divide. And one of the people that he gives this power to is a member of the Percy family. Now, if you remember, way back before this all started, the Nevilles and the Percys had been at each other's throats, killing each other before all this stuff started. They don't like each other. They're rivals. They've been rivals for a long time. And neither one of them wants to see the other one do well. Edward, by favoring both the Nevilles and the Percys, he's kind of trying to play both sides. And this doesn't go over well. Yeah. The other thing he does is that he reaches out to the Duke of Somerset. I remember the original Duke of Somerset was against the Duke of York way back when, and had actually gotten killed by the Earl of Warwick's father. So the new Duke of Somerset, who, again, doesn't really like the Warwick, doesn't like the Neville's, doesn't like Warwick, uh, he actually kind of becomes best friends with King Edward. It's really weird. Edward doesn't just, you know, give him title and lands, but he kind of gets really buddy-buddy with him. They go hunting, and I'll just quote uh, to you what one person at the court said about their relationship. Sorry. And the king made full much of him, insomuch that he lodged with the king in his own bed many nights, and sometimes rode a-hunting behind the king, the king having about him not passing six horsemen at the most, and yet three were the duke's men. The king loved him well, but the duke thought treason under fair cheer and words, it appeared. Whoa. Now, before we go down the obvious path of what sharing a bed means, (laughs) it should be pointed out in this time period it wasn't unusual for, for people to share beds. Beds were very large, and they were also very expensive. Not a lot of people had them. A lot of people just slept in hay. So sharing a bed wasn't super unusual. didn't necessarily mean that anything was going down, but... The fact that somebody took the time to write about it. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, people in the York Society are saying, dude, this is one of the leaders of the people who 
killed your father and fought against you at that gigantic battle, and you're fucking sleeping with him? <laughs> a lot of gay guys don't like their dads. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a trope, but it's true. So, <laughs> you know, and they're sort of proven right to mistrust, you know, the Percys and this Duke of Somerset who had, you know, been fighting Edward because they eventually betray him. You know, Sir Ralph Percy, one of the Percy family members, was put in charge of a bunch of castles in northern England. And on one of those incursions by King Henry and Queen Margaret, he actually surrendered the castles and declared for them. And, uh, you know, the Duke of Somerset eventually tries to tries to lead a rebellion against King Edward. And Edward apparently is so furious about this, which kind of makes it a little more weird because he doesn't treat it like anyone else rebelling against him. He's almost like personally hurt by this well yeah and we're told that uh after capturing the duke of somerset and putting down his rebellion he killed him out of hand like his his self didn't make it official anything just it was personal for him northern style so you know maybe something going on maybe we don't know uh however you know it's it's becoming clear to some of the Yorkists that Edward King Edward maybe not such a great judge of character at times. He's a little too trusting, uh, a little too confident, maybe overconfident even. Huh. You know, and he's betrayed, and you know, his his judgment is called into question by some of his supporters, including the Earl of Warwick. Now, the powerful Earl of Warwick, who is seen as you know the most powerful man in the country by a lot of people, sort of the uh, Tywin Lannister to the King Joffrey, maybe a little bit. Uh, he's got plans for Edward in, in England. You know, big plans. But King Edward, he's not King Henry. He's not simple and timorous. He can't be controlled. He's his own man. He's got his own mind. And he's got his own ideas about what he wants to do. And the thing that really sort of touches off the divide between King Edward and the Earl of Warwick, is Edward's decision to marry a lady named Elizabeth Woodville. Now, Elizabeth Woodville was from a family that had supported the Lancastrians in the war between them and the Yorkists. So again, people sort of see this, and they're thinking, all right, dude, you gotta stop trusting these people. You, you can't trust them. What are you doing marrying one of them? He's also the king, and he's marrying this lady who is... Not a very powerful noble. It's, it's you know, not the, a good political marriage. Exactly. And what... Kind of like kind of like Rob Stark. Yeah. And Married it's, Jane Westerly. Exactly. It's, uh, and you know, it's the way he does it, too, really sets a lot of people off. Uh, from someone who was there, this is how they describe the, the wedding ceremony. In most secret manner, upon the first day of May, 1464... King Edward espoused Elizabeth, late the wife of Sir John Grey Knight, which before time was slain at Towtown, or York Field, which spouses were solemnized early in the morning at a town named Grafton, near Stony Stratford, at which marriage was no persons present but the spouse, the spouses, the Duchess of Bedford, her mother, the priest, two gentlewomen, and a young man to help the priest sing. It's a secret marriage. Sounds a lot like the Rob Stark marriage. I gotta, I gotta bring that up again. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's it's a secret marriage 
first of all. He doesn't tell anyone. He's the king. He should be having a, mar- a, a wedding with hundreds of people, and he's got, what, six? You know, it, it's a secret marriage. He doesn't tell anyone. And what really sort of touches this off is the fact that he gets married to her, and then doesn't tell anyone for, like, four months. And in those four months, the Earl of Warwick is over in France trying to negotiate a marriage between King Edward and a French princess to sort of, you know, unite the two countries. Of course, when it comes out that Edward's already been married, (laughs) the Earl of Warwick looks like a jackass. (laughs) Maybe even looks like a liar. Mm. So he's not happy about this. And a lot of people are not happy about it because, again, she doesn't have a whole lot of money. The king is marrying below his station, basically. Since we're on the tip, this the subject, I want to bring up something that I had read about about Game of Thrones uh, earlier. In the book, Jane Westerling, you know, so okay, Rob goes and attacks the Westerling's castle, it takes it, but in the process is kind of injured. Jane Westerling comforts or uh, you know, kind of nurses him and also comforts him when he find she finds out comforts comforts him when they find out that uh rickon and uh bran had been uh, killed by theon supposedly right there's a big thing about how tywin lannister planned that whole setup because the westerlings were kind of vassals starks yeah Yeah. he used love as a weapon basically gotta love tywin lannister, gotta love tywin lannister. okay Ooh, sorry boy. but we we told dude this is an exact moment of history crossing with george R. R. martin's writings and i think it's awesome like yeah. it's so out there like a lot of the other things it's kind of you know it's like all right you can totally see the inspiration but this is just straight up where that story from lies. the pages of history exactly yeah uh pretty fantastic and it just shows you how interesting history can be uh you know, it's a secret marriage. Edward pretended that he had been hunting instead of at a wedding when people were like, hey, where did you go? <laughs> I was just out hunting. I was hunting. I was hunting. <laughs> hunting, I swear to God, I didn't get married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's finally forced to reveal that he's already married when at a, at a meeting of parliament, people are like, so who are you going to marry? And Edward has to say, oh, so funny thing. I'm actually already married. <laughs> thing about that is ah. <laughs> <laughs> so again it this appears to the Yorks that Edward is a poor judge of character you know he's marrying someone who was a Lancaster you know he's already been betrayed by two of them one of with whom he already shared a bed with <laughs> uh, what is he doing making the same mistake three times in a row and not only that, but he's marrying well below his station. He's married into a family that not only is very poor, but also has a reputation in the country for being extremely greedy, uh, hangers-on like. And that's exactly what they start to do. They start asking Edward for money, and he just starts giving it to him, giving him titles and lands, titles and lands that Warwick had kind of hoped that the Nevilles would get. They're getting a lot of lands that Warwick has his eye on. And this sort of further divides him. It sort of it builds two camps, really. It builds a Woodville camp and then a Neville camp. Now, in a, in addition to the fact that Edward is giving all this money and titles and land to uh, the Woodville family, 
He's also giving them marriages. He's promising them marriages to his two younger brothers. Now, brother of the king, that's almost a nice marriage as marrying the king himself. And the Earl of Warwick had kind of been hoping that a couple of his daughters would be able to marry the brothers of King Edward. But Edward says, no dice. They're getting married to some Woodvilles. <laughs> it really, it again, drives another wedge because Warwick sees his power and his influence over King Edward sort of being taken away by these Woodvilles. And who are these Woodvilles? You know, they're, they're traitorous hangers-on. You know. Sycophants. Exactly. And, you know, Elizabeth, she's sort of like... Queen Marjorie, almost. I mean, she knows what she's doing. She knows she's a beautiful, beautiful lady, and she sort of got. She sort of has Edward wrapped around. She her plays finger. the Game of Thrones. Exactly. Gotcha. Uh, we're told that she kind of forced Edward to marry her because, you know, he's a, he's a little bit like King Robert. King Robert. He's a bit of a lecher. Uh, he's already got several kids. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he, apparently, he threatens her with a dagger, and she's like, "Nope, gotta marry me." And I guess she's so good looking. Edward's so hot for her that he's like, all right, fine, I'll marry you. Do you think she pulled the pregnancy card? I don't think They're so. They're like, oh, you knocked me up. You've got to marry me now. I don't think. I'm a, I'm a royal lady. I don't think that Edward would have fallen for that because he had already knocked up plenty of other women. <laughs> Were they like highborn, though? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and she's aware of this, and she also knows that Warwick and some of the people in his circle had kind of pimped for Edward and kind of helped him out. And in fact, um, you know, someone who had tried to sort of challenge the marriage by saying, well, I was already betrothed to King Edward, so you can't marry marry him. You know, she came out, and this is what she said about what King Edward had done with her. She explained, His grace spoke so loving words unto me that I verily hoped that he would have married me. And if it had not been for such kind words, I would have never showed such kindness to him to let him so kindly get me with child. Substitute kindly for uh, fuck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he's, she knows that he likes to run around behind her back. She knows he's kind of like a, a Robert Baratheon character. And she also knows that some of the people who facilitate this behavior are Warwick and his buddies. So, it's very much that the Warwicks, the Warwick and Elizabeth don't like each other. The Nevilles and the Woodvilles don't like each other. You've got two rival camps now. The Yorkists are starting to divide in two. To kind of put the further nail, the last nail in this coffin is that Warwick had been hoping that he could forge an alliance between France and England. And he, he had some... Self, some selfish motivation behind this because the king of France had been saying, look, if you get me in good with England and help me deal with my enemy Burgundy, then there'll be a little something in it for you. Maybe you'll get some French lands and titles and money. So Warwick's thinking, all right, maybe I'll, I'll, I'm going to get King Edward on board with this. Unfortunately, King Edward and the Woodvilles are saying, nah, we kind of like Burgundy. Let's run with Burgundy here, man. Fuck France. <laughs> so, it's it's personal, it's familial, and it's political. The divides between these these two camps, 
and it's no good. It's gonna get touched off. There's gonna be some bloodshed. You know it. Now this all starts to come to a head in 1469. So about eight years after King Edward had become king. What Warwick does is he begins to court one of King Edward's younger brothers named George. And he is the Duke of Clarence. So everyone calls him Clarence. <laughs> <laughs> Clarence. <laughs> he st- Warwick starts telling him that maybe he should be the king. Edward's kind of fucking up. He's a bad judge of character. He's marrying below his station. He doesn't know that you're supposed to ally with France. He's going to screw everything up for England. And you know who wouldn't do it? Old George of Clarence. Because old George of Clarence is real smart. You know that, George. He's, he's really... He's really... It's talking nice to him. Putting honey in his ear. Clarence is fancy. Yeah. And Clarence eats this with a spoon. <laughs> he loves it. He's the younger brother of Edward, and in that time, you know, if you're the younger brother, it means you're you're getting the shit on the stick, you're getting the scraps from the table, you're always living in your older brother's shadow. This is Renly Baratheon's storyline. Exactly. Yeah. You know, he's he's sick of being the afterthought. Yeah. Yeah. So he says, All right, I'm with you, Warwick. Let's make this happen. And to sort of seal the alliance, Warwick marries his daughter to Clarence in secret. Because then, again, this was a marriage between the Nevilles and one of King Edward's brothers that he had denied. He had said, no, it's not going to happen. And in fact, he's going to marry in Woodville. So the marriage happens in secret. And then Clarence and Warwick go to Calais. Now, during this time, there's a rebellion in England under a guy named Robin of Redsdale. And it's very similar to Jack Cade's rebellion that we talked about in our first or second installment on this thing. You know, the one against King Henry VI for being a screw-up. Now, this rebellion is very similar to Jack Cade's rebellion because what the rebels are saying is that, you know, the Woodville... King Edward is fine. God wants you to be king. You're cool. We got no beef with you, but we got beef with all the people that are around you. These Woodville nobles. They're screwing things up, man. Here's what the rebels have to say about the Woodvilles. The deceivable rule and guiding of certain seditious Persians. These are the Woodvilles. Estranged the great lords of their blood, and were not advised by them, and taken about them others not of their blood, and inclining only to their counsel to rule and advise impoverishing the king by obtaining from him possessions above their deserts and degrees, causing the utter impoverishment of us, his true common subjects, and the great enriching of themselves. So again, they're saying, you know, King Edward, man, what are you doing giving all these lands and titles and gold to the Woodvilles? You should be taking care of us, our small, small, the common folk. What are you doing? Now, what it, what really is going on is that Warwick is orchestrating this rebellion. He's trying to distract King Edward. He's trying to turn the populace against him. And in fact, most of these rebels were actually Neville soldiers. So this is all Warwick's doing. He's very cunning. He's very clever. What happens next is, is very complicated. 
So I'm going to give you a, a real bird's eye view of it, not get into all the details and intricacies, because there's a lot going on. So Warwick and Clarence leave Calais, and they land in southern England with an army. They're hoping that, you know, they can hook up with the rebels and defeat King Edward. What they do is they meet an army that is led by some of the Woodvilles, and they defeat it. They kill all the Woodvilles, and they kill a lot of the lords that had been, you know, sort of retainers of the Woodvilles. It's, it's the first years of the Wars of the Roses all over again. Nobles killing nobles. Three days later, they capture King Edward while he's trying to ride out to take control of his own army. So King Edward is in their control. And what they try to do is they try to do exactly what the Duke of York had done with King Henry. You know, rule through him. But the only problem is King Edward is not King Henry. He's not simple and timorous. He's brave, he's independent, and he's strong. So they hold him for something like seven weeks trying to get him to do what they want him to do, and he keeps saying no. But noticing all this, those northern lords that have always kind of supported the Lancastrians, they look down and they say, the Yorkists are divided, they're fighting amongst each other, now is our time. And so they rise up. And Warwick tries to go out and meet it and put it down. But no one's willing to fight for him. They want to fight for King Edward. So what he has to do is let King Edward go. So he releases King Edward, and Edward takes control of the army, and he puts down this little rebellion in the north, and there's this uneasy peace between Edward and Warwick and Clarence. You know, on the one hand, Edward has no more power base, really. A lot of the Woodvilles have been killed. A lot of the lords that supported him were killed with them. But on the other hand, for Warwick and Clarence, they can't get over that divine right. It's become very obvious to them, after what happened in the north, that people aren't going to fight for them. People aren't loyal to them. They're loyal to King Edward. So each side has its own weaknesses and can either can't, you know, overcome the other side. So there's this uneasy truce between them. For about the next year, what Edward does is he starts to build up his power base all over again. What he does is he goes to his other younger brother named Richard and gets him on board. And he allies formally with the Percys. The last thing he does is he goes to one of Warwick's brothers and says, look, support me and I'll put you in charge. And he makes him the, the Marquis of Montague. So by 1470, Edward has reestablished his power base and he's ready to make a move. But he gets beaten to the punch. You see, Warwick and Clarence, they plan to have a series of rebellions go, go off across England. And these rebellions would distract King Edward. He'd have to run around stamping them out. And while he's doing that, they can make their move. They can make their power grab. So the first of these rebellions happened in a place called Lincolnshire. Under a local lord who was secretly supported and funded by Warwick and Clarence, a rebellion starts. But what King Edward does is he rides out and crushes it, and he does it extremely fast, a lot faster than anyone thought he was going to be able to do. And he's merciless about it, too. This is called the Battle of 
Lost Coat Field because while the battle's going on, Edward crushes the army, the opposing army, so fully that they start running away. And so they can run away faster, they start throwing off their coats. That's how scared they are of King Edward and his army. Go drop some weight. <laughs> exactly. We need to go faster. So he captures the, the local lord who had, you know, sort of orchestrated this whole thing. And he says to him, look, I'm going to pardon you. Just tell me, you know, who, who's behind this? Why did you do this? And the local lord gives up Warwick and Clarence. He tells, he spills the beans. He tells the whole story. Edward says, thanks you, and then kills him. <laughs> pardon be damned. Edward is done fucking around. No more half measures. Seeing this, the other lords who were gonna, you know, start their own little rebellions to distract Edward, they saw how decisively he dealt with this one, and they say, uh, no thanks, man. Uh, not gonna do it. <laughs> so what Warwick and Clarence have to do is now flee, because that one guy spilled the whole beans. Edward knows their entire plan, and he's finally got proof that he can use to denounce them as traitors, and really put the screws to him. So what they do is they flee to France. When they get to France, Warwick, already being kind of good with the king of France, having you know met with him before and tried to negotiate with him, uh, the king of France offers to help. You know, He wants England on board with him because, he again, he's trying to get rid of Burgundy. What he does is he says, all right, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give you soldiers. I'm going to give you supplies. I'm going to give you ships. And when you take control, what you're going to do is you're going to declare war on Burgundy with me. And we're going to take him out. That's the tit for tat. What he says is, look, you can't screw around with this Clarence guy. Nobody's going to support him. We already proved that. You gotta get King Henry back in charge. Whoa. He trots out Queen Margaret, who's been hanging out in France. Says, look, Warwick... Margaret, I know you guys were fighting before, but you're going to make peace now. You're going to restore King Henry. You're going to get England back under control. And then you're going to help me fight Burgundy. That's what they do. So now you've got, through weird political machinations, you've got Warwick and the Nevilles, the original supporters of the Yorks, turning coat and joining Queen Margaret and the Lancasters, who are back again to fight. What a twist. What a twist. <laughs> so they make a pact. They're going to restore King Henry. The thing is, this is not a secret. Edward knew what was coming. He knew that they were going to land. And he actually made a pro proclamation saying so, saying, you know, I, I know what you're going to do. What he says is, We be credibly informed that our ancient enemies of France and our outward rebels and traitors be drawn together in accord and intend hastily to land in our county of Kent or in the parts there adjoining with great might and power of Frenchmen utterly to destroy us and our true subjects. Edward issues this proclamation like, Don't try it. I know what you're going to do. Don't try it. I am going to destroy you. Don't you do it. Don't you Don't do you it. Do it. <laughs> but they do it anyway. They Ow. land in southern England, and Edward 
marches out to meet them. His army's a little bit smaller than theirs, but remember, this is King Edward. This is the guy who hasn't lost a battle yet. This is the tall, victorious king from Mortimer's Cross, from Tau Town, who can stand up there, his gigantic self, and just take over a battlefield. He's not worried. The night before the battle, there's a knock on his door. It's a faithful servant. He comes and he says, You gotta go. You gotta flee. King Edward says, Why? The servant says, Because. That Neville brother that you're with, that guy you made Lord Montague, he's marching here right now with his army that you've been marching with, and he's going to capture you and give you to his brother. There's going to be a betrayal. And there's nothing Edward can do about it, because he doesn't have a big army. Montague's got a big army. Warwick and Clarence have their own army of Frenchmen. He's vastly outnumbered. So what he has to do is he has to flee. He takes a few loyal subjects with him, flees to the east coast of England, gets on a ship, has to leave some people behind because there's not enough room for them, and says, keep the faith, I'll be back, I swear. He flees to Holland. Warwick and Clarence take London, and they restore King Henry VI. That's where we leave off today, small folk. Pretty pretty nice twist, John Bryant. That is a good one. That, Yeah. And it all starts with a shitty wedding. <laughs> awesome. Let them be less to you, small folk. Don't get married in secret. It does not going to turn out well it for never, you. It never turns out right. well. Especially if you're a king. Yeah. Do not elope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. John Bryant, another one in the books. Another one in the books. Got to remember, gotta tell small folk, make sure and check out winterfillstudios.podbean.com get and your latest edition of WPR enter our logo contest we need a new logo we're on Facebook so if you like something if you dislike something comment on Facebook let us know and we'll ignore it send us our raven your ravens and uh yeah well long, li- long live King, King Tom Tommy uh, sure why not yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. you know John Bryan uh, as always, our mission is to educate the people of Westeros, the small folk. And looking forward, looking back, actually, we have been not doing our jobs. I mean, it's been almost a month since our well, last episode. Well, here's the thing about that. Um, you know what? We're not going to be able to do an episode every week. Um, we're not that show that just recaps what happened on the last show. Like, there's a lot of um, podcasts that do that. That's not us. We're talking about the history of Westeros. We're looking at, you We're know... We're here to expose you to the people, places, and culture of Westeros. Give you the that, context of what's going on in your that, daily life, small folk. We're not a current events kind of show. Uh, we're going to give you the broad picture. That's right. So tune in next week, small folk. Or maybe not next week, maybe next month. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you this much, small folk. If you send in some donations, maybe we'll get some more episodes out. Definitely. All right. Well, stay tuned, small folk. You want to go to Taco Bell? Yes. <laughs> You're a talker. Listening to talkers makes me thirsty. I understand that if any more words come pouring out your cunt mouth, I'm going to have to eat every fucking
talking chicken in this room. If you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. I found her surprisingly beautiful in a brutal, horribly uncomfortable sort of way. 